I'm always amazed in my house, maybe it's just my house, something will happen. Something trivial, completely insignificant. Now, I've got four kids, right? So whenever it happens, thanks. <laughs> Sometimes I forget. It's helpful to be reminded. So something happens and, and doesn't always involve all of them, but usually at least two. And, and they come running. Dad, so-and-so did this. Okay, so-and-so, come here. Try not to name names. Because I, I can think of very specific instances with very specific kids right now. And I try to not do that with my kids. So-and-so, come here. Yes. What happened? Well, they did this. And I'm thinking, you were both in the same place at the same time, right? Because you just gave me completely different perspectives on what happened. Right? And you don't even just see this with kids. You see this in the world. You probably see it at work. You see it in your families. People can experience the exact same thing and yet experience it in very different ways, different perspectives. One of the things I love about the Gospels and, and I think specifically in the Gospel of John. John really brings this out. How Jesus interacts with people, which is beautiful and wonderful to see the way he treats these people. Many that are struggling, some that think they're always right, and he shows them lovingly, firmly, that they're not. But you also see how these people respond to him. And so today, we're going to pick up the Gospel of John in John chapter 11, verse 45. We're going to look at three views of Jesus, three ways that, that either a group of people or individuals responded to or had some sort of a perspective on Jesus. And, and let me give you the end from the beginning. As I was studying this and I came up with this, uh, this kind of concept of three different ways that people were viewing Jesus, I had in my mind that two were going to be wrong and one was going to be right. And the more I studied, the more I prayed and poured over this passage, the more it struck me, all three were actually absolutely correct. And it was very challenging to me to see that. Now, they're correct in different ways, but let's look at this. There are three perspectives. The first is going to be the, the Jewish leaders. Now, just a little bit of context in case you're just joining us. Uh, in the early part of John chapter 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus passed away. He was sick and he died. Jesus had heard news that he was sick and Jesus chose not to go until after Lazarus had passed away. Shows up, speaks to Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, ends up raising Lazarus from the dead. It's this powerful, miraculous event in the Gospel of John. And so what we're looking at now is very shortly after that. Very shortly after that. And it's in response to this that the Jewish leaders are looking at what Jesus has done and they're starting to, or continuing to, to be more accurate, make some very difficult decisions about Jesus. And it begins in verse 45 with the Jewish crowd kind of wondering what's going on. Who is this guy that can do these miracles? And it's going to end in chapter 12, verse 11, where it says, on account of him, on account of the fact that Lazarus is alive, it says many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. People were making decisions about Jesus Christ. 
And so we want to look at these three different perspectives then in this account. We've got the Jewish leaders, then we're going to look at uh, Judas and how he responds to Jesus, and then we're going to look at Mary, the sister of Lazarus, not the mother of Jesus, but the sister of Lazarus. So let's begin with the Jewish leadership. Their response to Jesus or their perspective is that Jesus is a threat. He's a threat to them. Let's look at this passage together. Uh, the key verse is going to come up in verse 48. So watch for that. Let me read verses 45 through 57. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and that, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. The leaders are afraid. Lots of people are beginning to believe and trust in Jesus because the evidence at this point is quite overwhelming. He has healed sick people. He has made a blind man see, a lame man walk. And now, now he's raised a dead man from the grave. It's kind of a big deal. And so some of them are saying, what shall we do? What can we do? We've got to do something. It's all out of control. If we don't do something, we're going to lose our position in the Roman Empire. They're going to come in and defeat us. Now, a little bit of context there, in case you're not familiar. At this point in history, Israel is controlled by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire allowed them to have some basic freedoms. They were allowed to worship. They were allowed to uh, do what they wanted to do in the temple area, for the most part, free of Roman control. The Romans did uh, take a lot of taxes from them, but also provided some semblance of protection from uh, foreign nations. And so it was this time of a difficult peace, a hard peace. There was a peace there. And it was a peace that that the gospel is able to spread in this area because of the Romans. It's a peace that the Jewish people were to some degree able to be who they wanted to be. But it was a hard peace because it was always under the authority and the watchful eye of the Romans. And the one thing that the Romans hated the most, the one thing that every nation, empire, city, state, whatever it was that was controlled by the Romans knew they had to avoid was causing trouble. If they caused trouble, 
if, if there was some unrest in their area, that would bring in the Roman army. And so they had to be very, very careful not to allow that to happen. And so here, some leaders are wringing their hands and just saying, oh, what's going to happen? If, if this doesn't stop, everyone's going to believe in him. And the Romans will come in. And Caiaphas stands up. And he admonishes them. I would love to say at this point that this religious leader stands up and is the voice of reason. But I would say at this point, in many ways, he's the voice of sin. Because what he reminds them is that they have control. That they are in control of the situation. He says, no, no, this is not going to get out of hand. Don't you know who you are? We are going to put this man to death. He's a threat and we're going to eliminate him. It is better for him to die than for the nation to suffer. You do not realize it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He has a concept that they can control the situation. Jesus is a threat and they can eliminate the threat. That's what he believes. Now this is interesting. Because his goal is to overcome their fear. Their fear is that they're going to lose control over their nation because the Romans are going to come in. This is happening right around 30 A.D., In 70 AD, just a generation or two later, the Romans indeed are going to come in and sack Jerusalem. Even though they took Jesus and put him on the cross, the very thing that they were so desperate to avoid is exactly what's going to happen to them. Because, my friends, control, our control, is an illusion. It's an illusion. They think they have control, therefore Jesus is this threat. And so Caiaphas stands up and says, look, let's do what we can. We can put this man to death. As I was reading this, another passage popped into my head from the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 through 15. Joshua stands up before the nation of Israel. Who would eventually be these people that are standing here. And Joshua challenges them, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped before the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, We will serve the Lord. Here's one Jewish leader, long time before the passage that we're reading, who came to the people and said, look, look, you do have a choice. You can serve or or hold on to the control that you think you have in this place, or you can serve the things that you thought gave you control when we were enslaved in Egypt, and you can serve their gods, but all of that is nothing. God had already conquered all of that. He had brought them out of Egypt. He had chased out the nations before them. And so Joshua stands up and says, I will serve the one true God. And yet here, many, many years later, the religious leaders are going the exact opposite direction. Here is the Son of God, their long-awaited Messiah, and they're saying, no, no, we've got this. We'll do what we know to do. We'll trust in our own control. 
And then I love that John gives us God's perspective on this. Kind of the pull the curtain back. So on the surface, what's going on is Caiaphas is making a decision. The religious leaders are making a decision. They think they're so smart. We'll put this man to death so that we can maintain control. And John pulls back that curtain to show us what God understands about this. Verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. John's saying, guys, this was always God's plan. God intended this from the very beginning. So it's ironic, and we've pointed that out in the book of John. He loves this sense of irony. Here they think they're exerting their control in order to put Jesus to death. And yet God is saying from his perspective, this was always my sovereign plan. You're doing exactly what I wanted you to do by putting my son to death. The beauty of this, they're doing what they want. God is using it, causing it for his purpose. God is sovereign. Think of a man at a bar. And he's had too many drinks. In that moment, he feels good. Feels like he's on top of the world. Like he can take on anything. His sense of of self-worth is maybe much higher than it should be in that moment. His sense of his own natural abilities is probably way out of whack in that moment. And so here he is feeling on top of the world like he can take on anything. And he stands up and he says goodbye to his friends and he says, I'm going home. And one of his friends who hasn't been drinking stands up and snatches his keys out of his hand. And says, you're not driving. In that moment, how does that drunk man see his friend? Wouldn't he see him as a threat He's standing in the way of his freedom. He's standing in the way of what he wants. And yet, isn't that man doing exactly what the drunk man needs and what all the rest of us need as well? Guys, Jesus is a threat. He's a threat to our control. He's a threat to our priorities. He's a threat even to our comfort. We have, I believe, in the American church, over the past hundred years or so, we have taken so many of the rough edges off the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have turned it into, God is here to help you do what you want to do. And that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has come because what we want and what sense of control that we have is way out of whack. And we don't even see it like the drunk man at the bar. And God sends his son to do what we could not. Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. That is a threatening statement. It means we have to let go of the things that we often hold on to as so important that we have to give up things. How many of us struggle because Jesus is a threat to our own control? The truth is, when we give up our control and trust in Christ, we're giving up something that isn't even real in the first place. It's an illusion. It's like the feeling of a drunken man. We give it up for something that is completely real and that only God can give. Jesus is a threat. And we need to accept that threat. 
We need to admit that we need that threat. We need to be changed. We need to be corrected and turned around. Let's look at Judas. Judas has the view that Jesus won't give him what he wants. Now, a little bit of context here before we get into it, because I'm dealing with this a bit out of order. Mary, Martha, Lazarus are all with Jesus as well as the disciples at a dinner that's being held for Jesus' honor because he raised Lazarus from the dead. I imagine there's a large group of people there. Probably very important, prominent people are there. Mary, at some point, takes a pint of of nard. This is uh, a perfume that's so often used to prepare someone for their burial. Scripture says this was probably worth what we would consider a year's wage. You can put whatever number you want on that, but it's a lot of money. This is a treasure, a family heirloom. And she uses this and pours it out on him, specifically on his feet, wipes his feet with her hair as an act of worship. We're going to look at that in a moment. But Judas has a strong response to this. Look at verses 4 through 8. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas sees an opportunity whenever somebody wants to give a gift to Jesus. As the keeper of of the purse, the money bag, as the disciples traveled, they would have expenses of their own that had to be cared for, meals and so forth. But also they would use this money, evidently, to help the poor. But this text tells us Judas would help himself. He saw Jesus as an opportunity to get what he wanted. The closer he could stay to Jesus, the more money he could make. And I think it's not unreasonable to extrapolate from this that Judas probably had this picture of when Jesus, this king, would come into his kingdom and he would be right there with him. And the money and the power and the authority that he would get. He saw Jesus as a way to get what he wants. And yet here, here, Jesus shows him something important. Because Jesus tells him, verse 7, Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And in this moment, Judas realizes Jesus is not going to give him what he wants. That where Jesus is going is not wealth and power, it is death and submission that will ultimately lead to his glory, but it's very different than what Judas had in mind. This event was a turning point for Judas. In Mark, he records that after this, Judas went out and agreed to betray Jesus. That this was the moment. For Judas, from his perspective, that a light went on and he said, I'm on the wrong team. This is not going where I want. I'm not going to get out of this what I want to get out of this. My kids like to get good things from me. I like to give good things to my kids. 
They'll come and they'll ask for a treat. They'll come and they'll ask for free time, time to play, watch a movie, whatever it might be. They like getting good things from me. What if my five-year-old, Ainsley, my sweet Ainsley, she's one of those girls, some of you matter, she's hard to say no to. She's so cute. And what if she comes to me and says, Daddy, I want, I want to play outside. Sure, Ainsley, go play outside. Great, I want my bike so I can play in the street. We don't live on a busy street. but There are cars that come through. Should I give my five-year-old what she wants? Is that love? Is it love to always give her what she wants? And the answer is no. Sometimes the loving thing is to not give them what they want. And the loving answer is to always give them what they need. Now, I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. I don't always know specifically what my child needs. I I think I do. I hope I get it right most of the time. God gets it right all the time. He knows. He knows what we need. Sometimes, and, and my guess is this is true of some people here, You began to follow Jesus. You maybe started coming to church or showing up at some Bible studies thinking, if I I just get closer to Jesus, my life will get all better. Jesus will give me what I want. And then you go through those times. That's not true. And it seems like you're not getting what you want. And because you've equated Jesus as this sort of religious, experiential vending machine, you want to walk away and go a different direction. We've all been there. We all struggle with it. And Judas is the classic example of where that leads. The truth is, Jesus doesn't give us what we want. He gives us something so far better. Judas and his greed wanted this perfume that cost a year's wages so that he could sell it and keep some of the money for himself, he would go out and sell Jesus Christ, his Savior, for far less money and betray him for 30 pieces of silver that valued anywhere from maybe two or 300 bucks to maybe half a year's wages. But either way, it was still far less than what's going on here. This man was consumed with getting what he wanted. And then we have Mary. Six days, chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Jesus had recently raised Mary's brother, Lazarus, from the dead. Mary loved Jesus before that. She trusted Jesus even before that. But this was another instance of of Jesus just confirming to her his power, his authority even over life and death. And so here they are at a moment that is to honor Jesus. And Mary does the unthinkable. She takes it to a whole new level of bringing worship and honor to Jesus Christ. 
by taking this perfume, and I, I, I mentioned in passing earlier, this was probably a family heirloom. This, in their thinking, was practically priceless. One thing that really struck me as I was reading this, and I was thinking about how did Mary think about this perfume? What was it worth to her? I mentioned this perfume was specifically used most often to prepare somebody really important for their burial. Who just died in the past chapter or two? Lazarus. Why does Mary still have the pint of pure nard? Because she didn't use it for her brother. He died. And I thought for that a a, a while, and I thought, well, sometimes, like in the case of Jesus, they went back and they applied the, the spices or the perfumes to the body. Sometimes they had to do it later, but then I thought they did that with Jesus because it was the Sabbath. They couldn't go that day, so they went the next day. Lazarus was in the tomb for three whole days. If she was going to use this priceless pint of pure nard on her brother, she would have done it. Did she love her brother? Absolutely. Understand where I'm going with this. To her, this was a treasure. That though she loved her brother, it was even greater than something that was to be used for him. And yet when it came to Jesus, she was willing to pour it on his feet. So not only did she use something that was so expensive, but think about what she did with herself. She got down... And not only touched his feet, which only a servant, only the lowest of servants would have done. Not only does she wash his feet, but she does it with her hair. And that culture, hair on a woman was was a sign of their their glory, their, their properness. It was a sign of their status. And she is willing to wipe a man's feet with it. Not only does she give up an item that is of great value, She's putting her own reputation on the line. She is, being, she is willing to be seen by everybody gathered as a complete, lowly, uh, foolish servant. Because in that moment, all that matters to her is worshiping Jesus. Because her perspective on Jesus is that he is her Savior, King. And Jesus responds, leave her alone. And like the religious leaders, he points out that she is doing this with a purpose. And I believe it's a purpose even beyond what she understood. Verse 7, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. There were a lot of things going on in the time of Jesus at this moment. They knew that he was possibly going to die soon, that he might be arrested. And yet later on, when he actually is arrested and he goes to the cross, the response of the disciples and even the women is is being shocked. So I don't know that she was coming to him saying, I know you're about to go to the grave and you're going to rise again, and so I'm going to anoint you. I don't think it was that well thought through. She just wanted to worship Jesus. But like the high priest, Jesus says she's doing more than she knows. And I love this. When we worship Jesus, we are doing more than we can even understand. When we declare truth through these songs, when we pray, when we read God's word, when we live a life of worship and obedience to Jesus Christ, not only are we doing something beautiful and wonderful and powerful, but we're doing even more than we can possibly understand. And God uses it for his purposes and his kingdom. 
in here, just as it is true that Jesus is a threat, just as it is true that Jesus isn't here to just give us what we want, it is very powerfully true that Jesus is our Savior and our King. He is worthy of our love and devotion. He is worthy of any sacrifice. He is our King and our Savior whose greatest act of power and authority was to die in our place, to conquer sin and death, and then rise from the grave, giving eternal life to all who believe. How do you see Jesus? Is Jesus a threat to you? So I I can't follow him. I, I like this too much. I could never give this up. That's your illusion of control in your own life. It's the illusion of control that says that thing, that attitude, that action, that relationship, whatever it is, that's what's going to make you happy. That's going to want, is what is going to keep you comfortable. And yes, Jesus might be a threat to that. Do you face disappointment in your relationship with Jesus? You feel like he's not giving you what he wants? That's quite possible. And when Jesus doesn't give us what we want, it's because he always knows what's best for us. And that's what he's giving us instead. Have you accepted that Jesus is your Savior King? Worthy of love and devotion. Look at chapter 12, verse 11. On account of him, Lazarus, right there, raised from the grave, his changed life, on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. I pray that as Christians, we have this effect on other people. Our testimony of of living with Jesus as our Savior and King shows to other people who he is. There are many perspectives on Jesus. But ultimately, there's only two options. Either Jesus is our Savior King, or He isn't. And the side of of not believing that He is our Savior and King might be that we're holding on to control. It might be that we're holding on to getting what we want. But ultimately, we need to bow it all down at the foot of Jesus Christ and say, You are worth more than anything I have, anything I can offer. I give my life to You. With the words of Joshua, I challenge us this morning. Choose this day. Choose this day whom you will serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you gave us the greatest gift. That gift of Jesus Christ is a threat to our own control. What a gracious act that is. To to take that which we've clutched in our hand and we think gives us freedom and power and authority and comfort and you open up our fingers and you snatch it out because you love us too much. And Father, there are times that our motives in following you and trusting you are, are off base. And there are times we're coming to you and just saying, God, I want this, I want this, I want this. And you and your love and grace and mercy say no. Because you know better. And Father, in those moments that we we feel, we sense 
that you are a threat to what we want, that we feel the disappointment that you don't give us what we want, may we bow at the foot of your throne and say, but you are our Savior and King. And may we worship you with our money, with our thoughts, our emotions, our will, with our time, with our jobs, with our families, our churches, our neighborhoods. May we worship you, Father, that we would point others to you, that they could see your Son as their King and Savior and be raised to new life in him. In whose name we pray, amen.